Cultivating Place is made possible in part through the generosity of the Caddo Shaw Foundation. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Jane Perrone is the longtime host of the UK-based On the Ledge podcast, focused on indoor gardening and the love of houseplants. An expert in her field, her writing has been featured in The Guardian, The Financial Times, Gardens Illustrated, and many more. As well as editing The Plant Ledger, a great email newsletter about all things houseplants, now Jane has a new book, Legends of the Leaf, Unearthing the Secrets to Help Your Plants Thrive. In this deep end of the winter season, when our indoor gardening might be holding us through till we can get back outside, Jane joins me this week to share more about her many motivations and her new book, Legends of the Leaf. In our ongoing exploration of who gardeners are, where they are, and what they're growing in this world, Jane, I am so pleased to welcome you to Cultivating Place. It is really great. I love your show and it's an honor to be here. So I've given you this introduction. I've reminded people of who you are and some of the work that you do, but introduce yourself the way you would introduce yourself to other plant lovers and um, maybe in that include the role or the importance of plants in your life right now, Jane. I always say to people that I don't come from a horticultural background, although I have been growing plants all of my life. My background professionally is in journalism. So two things happened when I was a child that kind of set my life in its current direction. And they were one getting a one-line typed review of a visit to the theatre in my school magazine. I must have been about seven and I saw my byline for the first time and I thought that was so cool. And so that set me on the path to journalism. But around the same age, even younger, I was already interested in plants from a very young age and somehow acquiring cacti and sowing parsley seeds under the kitchen window and coming back half an hour later to see if they germinated. And <laughs> so I was just into plants. It must have been something that was not necessarily particularly encouraged by my parents. My dad was a self-taught gardener and, you know, he learned through reading the back of seed packets and getting seed catalogs. And I just, it was in my blood from a very young age, but I never considered horticulture as a career. And then I went off on my journalistic path and then ended, the two ended up intersecting at the point where I got a job editing the gardens pages of a national newspaper here in the UK, The Guardian. And so that, that was a good time for me to change gears because I'd spent seven years in a breaking news environment, which mm. was the period of the early 2000s, quite a busy news period, if you Very remember. Very busy news period, yeah. Okay, wait, so we're going to stop there and we're going to go back and unpack just a little bit. Mm. So where were you born and raised there in the United Kingdom? So I was born in the Chilterns, which is an area of land outside London, sort of northwest of London. and in a commuter town okay. and su surrounded by beautiful countryside and woodland and used to taking a lot of walks in the countryside, but growing up with a fairly modest garden, which I was allowed to play around in and had great fun in and lived there. And then when I went to university, I went to university in the West country of the UK, which is another lovely part of the world, beautiful countryside there. I ended up then spending two years in the state of Louisiana studying oh. for a master's in communication. So Interesting. that was my, yeah. <laughs> that blew my mind in terms of um, both flora and fauna and many other aspects of life. Uh, and then I've kind of moved around, but I've always kind of been based in, based in the Southeast of England and 
I guess, worked for many years in London when I was at The Guardian. Yeah. So how long were you in charge of the garden pages at The Guardian, Jane? So that was roughly eight or nine years that I did that job. Mm. And I had the delight of editing the copy of a writer called Alice Fowler, who you know, and who is a wonderful writer and a wonderful person to work with and become friends with. We made a podcast together at The Guardian called So Grow Repeat. Mm -hmm. And I learned a lot about gardening, particularly about ornamentals, because my garden experience up to that point had been growing food on my allotment Mm -hmm. and also houseplants, but I hadn't done so much in the ornamental side of things. So I learned a lot on the job doing that job and getting to interact with fascinating fellow uh, enthusiasts in plants and garden designers. And yeah, I mean, it's such a privilege to be able to, you know, walk into the Chelsea flower show on press day, go and talk to designers, sometimes be invited into their gardens. Uh, A really fantastic job that brought many rewards. That description you just gave of learning on the job. I mean, I think one, that's one of the gifts of the garden and being in relationship with plants throughout our lives, right, Jane? But it is certainly true of the work that you and I do in terms of having this entry into the minds and hearts and gardens of people who are equally passionate and often much more knowledgeable about certain aspects, certainly, of the gardened world. So tell us about that that time at The Guardian and that very first podcast you did with Alice, who was featured in my first book, The Earth in Her Hands, as, as one of the real kind of guiding lights of women in leadership positions in horticulture, shifting the paradigm uh, of our horticultural world in meaningful and important ways. The So Grow Repeat, like when did that get started and what did you learn both as a gardener, but also as a communicator about what it is people are increasingly and persistently interested in exploring and learning from, Jane? It was a wonderful experience working on that podcast. And it was motivated entirely by me. I'm not saying that in a kind of boastful way, but I had gotten hooked on podcasts by that point. So this is probably 2016, roughly 2015. And so I was already uh, addicted to podcasts and found that there, I I believed that there were many possibilities for podcasts in the gardening sphere. And so I pushed really hard for The Guardian to make that podcast. And we had great fun. I have to be honest and say, I didn't really know what the audience wanted. All I knew was what Alice and I wanted to cover. And we just were very, we had a complete editorial freedom to give the Guardian credit to just cover what we wanted. So we had an episode on trees where we went out onto Hampstead Heath and she taught me how to climb a tree because that wasn't something I had ever done. And I love it. I love it. That's great. it was it was it was brilliant and we had we had an interview in the studio with somebody who'd written a fascinating book about trees and so it we've tried to sort of redefine what gardening is and try to bring in just stuff that we were personally passionate about because that really is the key to podcasting is talking about something that you really love which is of course where my on the ledge came in. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to move to on the ledge, but first of all, go back to what you just said. We were trying to change the way people thought about gardening. What do you mean by that? Well, gardening is, well, I guess media generally tends to pigeonhole subjects and there's a subject called gardening and there's a subject called the food pages, which is about recipes and cooking. And there's a subject called arts. And actually, gardening crosses all of those things, particularly, obviously, food. But it also it it moves into all these different fields. And so I always felt that the limitations of 
pigeonholing gardening as, well, this is gardening. So we're going to talk about how to double dig and we're going to talk about the delights of Verbena bonariensis was very limiting on what you could actually cover when you're talking about gardening, because gardening is science and art and food and culture and history. And oh, so amen. That's amen. one of the things that I love about <laughs> about gardening. Uh, and I mean, that is true of, true of many other subjects, but I think it's particularly true of gardening. So we were just trying to bring in different strands that would allow people to get excited about gardening and not feel intimidated and think that it wasn't for them just because of a very restricted worldview of what gardening was. You know, I think in the time that you and I have both been in this field, we have really seen progress in this shifted paradigm, trying to reintegrate gardening as a an essential cultural literacy, if you will, that overlaps with and complements larger topics like fine arts or religion or, you know, economics, all of those things we we find in the garden. So, Take us to, because yours is an award-winning podcast on the ledge, uh, take us to your decision to to found this, your your kind of mm, signature work up until now, focused on the plants we can grow literally on our ledges. Yes. So I started the podcast in February 2017. I was still at the Garden Guardian at that point. But I the So Grow Repeat, we'd done two series, but it had ended and the Guardian didn't have the capacity to make any more of those shows. And I was kind of bereft, to be honest, because I loved making that podcast. And I had a conversation with somebody and I said, the thing is, I know how to do the content. I just don't know how to do the technical side. And they said to me, just go for it. Just you'll you'll figure that out. And so I just thought, gosh, I want to start a podcast about houseplants. And I've always felt that the gardening world can be a little bit snobbish about houseplants and that this sometimes happen when I, <laughs> happens when I talk to people who focus their attention outdoors, that they they sort of, on the one hand, they say that, tell me that they kill all their houseplants, but on the other hand, they kind of dismiss that the indoor gardening world as being something a bit less important than outdoor gardening. And so I wanted to shine the spotlight on houseplants and take that seriously as a topic. And I wanted to be, well, I guess I also wanted to be the first houseplant podcast. I knew, I could see the lie of the land that there were more podcasts coming. And I just thought, I want to do this before anybody else, because then I can make my mark on it. And of course, there have been many wonderful indoor gardening podcasts since. Mm. And, and, you know, and, and I sit amongst those, but I just wanted to, to make my mark on it. So I didn't feel like I was copying anybody else. Right, and so right. along came on the ledge, and we're six and a half years later. Right. Okay. So what what month and year did you first launch? So that was February 2017, and I was recording uh, in my bedroom with the chest of drawers, top drawer <laughs> open, my husband's pants around my computer. Uh, his 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 underwear drawer was the home of my computer and my microphone. And I just started recording. And I think I originally sort of, I was quite scripted and quite controlled because mm. I didn't really know how to be more ad-libbing, but I've, I've mm -hmm. kind of, it's morphed from there. And obviously six and a half years, I've made 270 plus episodes. So there's been a lot of houseplant chat and now the show it's not exactly unscripted, but I try to make sure that it sounds as if it's a planty conversation rather mm. than me talking at people mm -hmm. and just reading a script. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. 
This deep winter week here in the Northern Hemisphere, we're in conversation with Jane Perrone of the On the Ledge podcast focused on the wonderful world of houseplants and indoor gardening. We'll be right back for more with Jane. Stay with us. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by the Caddo Shaw Foundation, funding initiatives that empower women and help preserve the planet through the intersection of environmental advocacy, social justice, and creativity. Hey, it's Jennifer. So not only did I enjoy this conversation with Jane, but somehow at the exact same time, I was asked to host a panel last week at the Northwest Flower and Garden Show in Seattle entitled The Next Phase of the Houseplant Craze, where I was in conversation with some of our world's houseplant greats, Eliza Blank of the Sill, featured in my 2020 book, The Earth in Her Hands, Camille Bell-Hill, founder of Plant Blurred and Black People with Plants, as well as author of Happy Plants, Happy You. She sees plants as liberation. Also, Alexa Patty, head grower at Little Prince Plant Nursery, and Derek Haynes, also known as the chocolate botanist, and sometimes even known as the crazy botanist, who has some great big plant energy. And I'm going to tell you what, my friends, many of you know that I am not the best houseplant gardener, but my small but mighty community of five happy houseplants have never felt so seen and heard as they have these past few weeks. They're positively glowing. And I love that. After all, there is no one way to garden, no one place to garden only. And God bless our houseplants all year round, but especially in the deep, dark heart of winter. We're back now to our conversation with Jane Perrone, host of the On the Ledge podcast and author of Legends of the Leaf, Unearthing the Secrets to Help Our Plants Thrive. As we come back, Jane talks more about what she has taken away from her many years interviewing and communicating about the joys and expansive nature of indoor and houseplant gardening. Well, I think I started the show because my family were sick of me talking about houseplants to them and I wanted an outlet. <laughs> and it wasn't like I was reading a lot of houseplant content in the garden media either. You know, you were lucky if there was a, you know, couple of times a year, there might be a piece about houseplants. And what I discovered was that, hallelujah, there were lots of other people who liked the same things that I liked, that I wasn't alone. And obviously loads more people joined us during the pandemic and discovered plants. And that was very exciting as well. And so what has been really eye-opening has been the numbers of people who are growing plants and also the sheer ingenuity and ways that people are pushing the envelope in terms of what they're growing and how they're growing it, which is very humbling and very exciting to see. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go to the book now, because I think the, a lot of questions that I have as a follow-up to that have to do with the kinds of plants people are going and growing and the sourcing for them and the sometimes better, but probably hit hit a moment of inconvenience as well, supply sources for these plants in our lives. And what brought you after this long with the the podcast to saying, I I need to write a new book on the care and keeping of um of houseplants specifically. And you know, there are a lot out there, but what did you feel were missing or what did you feel was missing that you could add into this conversation for the real benefit of people out there getting started or even having grown plants inside for a very long time? 
Well, I am an avid collector of houseplant books, both right. vintage and modern. And I mean, I guess I looked at those shelves and saw a gap and the gap was mm. let's look at houseplants in the round. And this ties into what I was saying earlier about gardening, crossing boundaries of knowledge in that and also ties into what I was saying about a lack of appreciation for house plant growing as a pastime. That actually, if you really look at your Swiss cheese plant, your Monstera deliciosa, and you really look at it and you really learn about where it grows, how it grows mm. in the wild, mm-hmm. how it ended up here, how people have consumed and used this plant then it gives you a much richer picture and a r- much richer understanding. And I wasn't reading that consistently in houseplant books or indeed in houseplant articles. I was reading the same dull pieces of information over and over again, often repeated as often happens on the internet, you know, the same piece of slightly wrong information gets repeated over and over again. So <laughs> why that's is it that that always gets repeated? Like, why can't they pick up the right information to repeat, yeah. right? God. I know, I know. Uh, and, <laughs> you know, there, there's some fantastic sources of information on the internet about houseplants, but there wasn't anything that really went into the kind of depths I wanted to go into for this book. And so, I mean, I somewhat shot myself in the foot in that if I'd have written a different kind of houseplant book, it would have been a heck of a lot easier. I could have just written it in a few months, but I chose to really go deep. I was reading scientific papers. I was searching newspaper archives and doing in-depth research for each of the 25 plants that I decided to profile. So it was a lot of work, but also immense fun. And I managed to pull together information that I says, hey, I don't think you're going to read a lot of that information in one place. And I'm now delighted because occasionally I'll see somebody who's clearly read the book or read a chapter of the book and is correcting somebody online or who's telling a story from the book. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm glad that information's percolating through. That's great. Right. No. And, you know, doing what I do and the focus that I have, the lens that I use, this was this was genius to me in looking at the book, like getting the natural history of these plants just leads to so much greater intimacy and appreciation, especially when we think about the long term radiating impacts for better or worse on our natural world with our, you know, centuries long, millennia long, acquisitive nature for these plants, right? Like we we do not want to think, I do not want to think that anyone is going out into the world to collect illegally or unethically rare plants from faraway places so that I can grow it in a pot in my house. Mm-hmm. No, no one wants to think that. And yet we know it happens. You know, we've had the Dudleya here in California poached for uh, an Asian houseplant market. You know, so I think our ability to have these greater stories that you have just provided for us with some of our most, as you say, iconic houseplants here in the Northern Hemisphere at any rate, is, I think, just such a contribution to a greater mindset about how we care for things in this world, Jane. Well, thank you. Uh, That was the aim. And I I mean, I constantly worried that the book was going to be too in-depth and that people were going to be bored by me going into the kind of detail that I go into. I had to leave a lot of information out, to be honest. But, uh, you know, that's the nature of, of writing a book. But I hope that people can dip into it. And it's hopefully one of those books that you can either read cover to cover or you can dip into a chapter if you are very passionate or you have a memory of a a Boston fern or a spider plant or a Swiss cheese plant that was in an elderly relative's house that you loved. You can read this chapter and it will ring bells for you. There'll be surprising things in there. And ultimately, the aim is that it will make you care for that plant better. Because when you understand how these plants grow in the wild, that enables you to try to recreate as best you can 
some semblance of those conditions in your house. And that helps enormously. Yeah. And one of the things that I also deeply appreciated is in direct response to what you just said. And that is that you included a great depth of information that is asking us as gardeners, houseplant owners, and lovers to actually level up in our own intellectual embrace of this this relationship we have with our plants. And I think by and large, mainstream garden media has spoken down to us as gardeners and we're super smart. So (laughs) there is no reason that we can't follow, you know, digest and keep pushing through in-depth and sometimes technical information, I believe that our gardening audiences are actually hungry for this level of intellectual rigor. I totally agree. And I'm constantly blown away by the people who've read the book and listened to the podcast who have really gone deep on a particular plant or mm-hmm. way of growing and have self-studied and learned I mean, there's real reservoirs of expertise in this community, uh, not amongst amongst professionals, but also amongst people who've just spent their spare time learning. And it's really impressive. And so I love to be able to showcase that on the show, interviewing people who've got particular specialisms. And that's so exciting because you then access really good quality information based on growing these plants and researching them. And that's really exciting to me. Mm -hmm. And I love just as a a side note here, uh, that that appetite for intellectual rigor and depth is, I think, directly related to your dedication of the book to all of the listeners uh, to the podcast on the ledge who believed in Legends of the Leaf from the very beginning. And I I love that dedication, Jane. So well done, you. Uh, well, I mean, they I, they really did believe in it because it was a crowdfunded book. So mm-hmm. you know, they had to believe in this book <laughs> enough to be prepared to put money forward for something that didn't yet exist. Right. And so that was enormous for me. The book would not have happened. It was published via a publisher called Unbound here in the UK. They're a traditional publisher, but the funds for every book are created from crowdfunding, from a crowdfunding phase. And so I had to rely on people I knew and people that listened to my podcast and liked my work to actually stump up that money. And not surprisingly, then they were like, when's this book coming? And I'm working on it. I'm working on it. So it was very exciting to to crowdfund the book and to have that many people. If you get the book, there's a list of names in the back. Those are all the people who supported me. And I really couldn't have done it without them. And also just all the wonderful listeners who sent me messages. And I had some really, I mean, I've been in tears reading messages from listeners who have found the show. And I mean, I guess it's sometimes it's not anything I say. Sometimes it's just the sound of a voice that people Mm. enjoy. And I have been told that people find my podcast quite relaxing to listen to. I remember receiving an email from a listener in Australia during the terrible wildfires there. Oh, right. And they told me that they were escaping from a wildfire area where their house was, and they just put on my show and just listen to it as a distraction. And I said, wow, that's amazing. I was just blown away by that. But it's also just the people who message me saying, what do I do with this spider plant? It's looking a bit sad. I can ping them off an email. And then I get another email two weeks later saying, it's worked, Jane, it's worked. And it's so (laughs) exciting. It's so great to be able to help. Oh, I love those stories. I really do. And it, it reminds us, you know, that we're just, we're not alone anytime. Like our plants are always with us, but our other plants people, we are all together in this. And it is a a great source of both energy and contentment for for me as well. So you you crowdfunded the book and you uh, essentially have chosen about 25 uh, different houseplants, quite, you know, most of them quite common. And you have really fleshed out their stories, their care, and their use over time. Like some of them that are edible and culinary or medicinal in their original cultural or physical places. Just, I found fascinating. 
So let's pick, you know, you you have a a big introduction, which is somewhat similar to what you and I have just talked about. You have a, a pretty thorough note on houseplant care in terms of light and water and food and some pest management and stuff. Uh, and then you go into the profiles of these 25 you know, favorite plant friends. And let's go through a couple, Jane. What do you think? Yeah. Well, I mean, I have to say they're not all my friends in that. (laughs) I'm going to be honest with you. There's one plant in this book that I am really not a great fan of personally Mm. as a house plant. And that is Ficus lyrata, the fiddle leaf fig, which I Mm. hesitate to mention because I know lots of American listeners love this plant. And possibly if I was in Florida, I would love it more. Uh, But I had to include that plant because it's so iconic. And one of the things that was fascinating doing the research for the book about this plant was that we have very short memories. And we assumed that, I mean, I had certainly assumed before my research that this was a plant that really had only just in the last decade or so come into consideration as a house plant. But when I went back, it was being talked about as a new and exciting house plant. I think it was in the 20s, it first became, was started to get these mentions. And when you read the text um, of these books talking about the plant, it could be something from the last 10 to 15 years. It could have been written because it's just so similar. So yeah, that that's one that I, I know is a very popular plant. And actually, I sort of started researching that one a little bit skeptically thinking, there's not going to be enough to say, and then realized very quickly that there was loads to say. Okay, so let's just start right there. Why don't you like fiddle leaf fig? (laughs) I find the foliage unpleasing. I find the foliage kind of coarse and unrefined, and that's just a personal preference. And I always say to people listening to my podcast that there is no wrong or right answer to why you love a plant. And if a particular plant makes your heart sing, even if even if it's something that everybody else thinks is terrible, that's your plant and you sh- you're allowed to love that. And so I, I yeah, I, and a plus I don't have a home that could accommodate a fiddle leaf fig mm. in terms of light or in terms of space. Right. So they it's get quite never big. something... Yeah. It's never something that's kind of won my heart over. It's a bit, you know, it's a big African tree. That's what Mm -hmm. we have to remember. This is a big African tree and it's used as a shade tree in parts of Africa and also in places like Hawaii uh, because it's a very, very decent tree, but it is a tree and people are very scared to cut their fiddle leaf fig back when it hits the ceiling, but (laughs) you can do that very well. So for me, it just wasn't a plant that ever uh, attracted my attention. And yeah, but I loved writing about it. There were so many interesting things. So writing many, about yeah. The, the interesting world of uh, fig pollination yeah. was was really fascinating. And which is the same as any other fig. You know, they have this single species of tiny wasp that is its pollination partner. And there's a very elaborate process that goes on within that fruit to bring about pollination. And I was fascinated by that whole story. So it was a joy to write that chapter, but I I didn't make me want to buy one personally. Let's go back now um, because I, you know, I actually read it in order. Uh, I don't actually myself own a lot of houseplants. I have five and they are happy and I am happy with them. Um, And it has taken us some time to get there, Jane. That's great. I know. So so I'm feeling good about that. I I might after reading this, I might I might break out into one or two new editions this year. But I have always been fascinated by the Marimo moss balls. Would you would you talk about that's your very yes. first entry? <laughs> and I loved this entry. I loved the way you approached it, I loved the descriptions you gave, and I and I loved the interweaving of the natural history and the cultural history with where it sits now in our houseplant iconography. It was strange that this particular species started the book according to the way I organized it was alphabetically by the scientific name. So Iga Groppola Linnaei, the 
scientific name of the Marimo moss ball meant that it came very first in the book. But ironically, perhaps ironically, it's not the Marimo moss ball is not a moss or a plant. Right. right. Uh, but as I say in the, the, the opening lines, you know, filamentous freshwater green macroalgae, while more accurate, doesn't have the same ring to it. So <laughs> it's taken an interesting journey, actually, in terms right. of starting off in the aquarium trade as a plant for planted tanks. And then in the last few years, Suddenly, somebody saw a marketing opportunity here and decided to start selling it as a sort of a furry green pet, the ultimate low maintenance house plant. And as a result, Marimo moss balls became very popular and were something you saw everywhere and started to be seen, you know, people sort of styling little jars of these things all over the place. So yes, they're not really the most exciting visually to look at, because it is literally a ball about the size of a tennis ball, if you're lucky, that may or may not float up and down in your glass of water. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. This deep winter week here in the Northern Hemisphere, we're in conversation with Jane Perrone of the On the Ledge podcast, focused on the wonderful world of houseplants and indoor gardening at a time of year when we really lean into these friends as gardeners. We'll be right back for more with Jane. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer again. So I wanted to give you a little update on the matching grant made to Cultivating Place from the Caddo Shaw Foundation. First of all, huge kudos to Caddo Shaw Foundation for seeing their way clear to offering Cultivating Place this grant. I can't tell you how humbling it is, how energizing it is, and how motivated I am to make it work. Second, thanks to all of you who have given and supported so far. We are going to make this match by the spring equinox on March 20th. Thanks to all of you. We still have a ways to go. Another $25,000 to meet the full $75,000 match. And I think we can do it. Many of you have asked for more information about the grant and what specifically it is supporting in the work of Cultivating Place this year. There are three pathways built into the grant, which I think is beautiful and visionary, and they are all in the early processes of being built out right now. The first pathway is to make the program financially sustainable into the future. For me, the host, for any future hosts, and for my and for my small but mighty public radio station. The second pathway is to work on a succession plan for the program Beyond Me, which I think is beautiful. And finally, to curate a series of special Cultivating Place live episodes around the country in celebration and support of the places we record in and the intentional and beautiful cultivation of them there. We're designing and beginning to plant seeds down each of these pathways, so stay tuned for more on each, including really exciting announcements for two new guest host voices being rolled into the program later this year, and the announcement of some of the Cultivating Place live programs in planning as we speak around the country. I am feeling, as you might imagine, a little excited and a little anxious the way we do when we're waiting to see if our seeds really will germinate this year. My fingers are crossed and my heart is full. If you'd like to participate in helping us meet this match, and I know, I know how much you are being hounded for money in these times in our places, but... If this one calls to you, please chip in any amount you can through the support button at the top of every page at cultivatingplace.com, or if you'd like to make a larger tax-deductible donation and receive such a receipt, 
checks can be made out to North State Public Radio with a notation that the funds are in support of the Cultivating Place matching grant. You can mail these to North State Public Radio. Attention, Sarah Bohannon. 35 Main Street, Suite 101, Chico, California, 95928. And you can find all of this information in this week's show notes under the podcast tab at cultivatingplace.com. And thank you. Every contribution, no matter how small, means the world to this place we cultivate here on Cultivating Place. We're back now to our conversation about indoor and houseplant gardening with the famed Jane Perrone of the On the Ledge podcast and author of Legends of the Leaf, Unearthing the Secrets to Help Our Plants Thrive. As we come back, Jane is discussing more about specific plants she featured in Legends of the Leaf. She shares more about sustainability, childhood memories, and the evocative and personal illustrations in Legends of the Leaf. There's something about like the your description there of this velvety green living thing, um, just kind of being your quiet companion somehow that I, I just I I have never wanted a moss ball in a glass of water in my desk. But after your description, I thought I should maybe try one. <laughs> <laughs> it's very meditative to look at. I've just recently given mine a better jar and they're on my kitchen windowsill now. And I did get very excited because mine tend to not rise and fall. It depends how much light they're getting. But one of mine did sort of rise up and I thought, gosh, it's actually moving. So, yeah, (laughs) it's a very gentle excitement that you're going to get from these plants. But uh, well, these this algae, I should say. Right. But unfortunately, this the guns of the Marimo moss ball have been slightly spiked, certainly in the US, because they have been banned from sale in quite a few US states. But unfortunately, they were found to be carrying uh, zebra mussels, which are a hugely invasive species. And so obviously, for good reason, there was immediate cessation of their sale because that poses a huge risk of an invasive species moving into U.S. waterways because unfortunately people are not always sensible with the way they dispose of things. So that has unfortunately been a bit of a limitation on Mm -hmm. the Marimo moss balls kind of um, rise as a houseplant. And it brings up an issue that that should be front of mind when we go to buy or create demand for uh, this imported life coming into our, you know, places um, and making sure we don't continue to contribute to any invasive plant or species in our own places or the decimation of them in their places of origin. Is there Another plant that would have raised any of these sort of red flags that you would like to share with listeners? Well, that's a good question. Some of these plants have become incredibly invasive in subtropical and tropical climates, specifically Mm -hmm. devil's ivy, probably uh, Epipremnum aureum, and Swiss cheese plant, Monstera deliciosa. Mm -hmm. A lot of people assume that the Swiss cheese plant is from Brazil because it grows very widely there, but it's not. Its, Its native lands are Mexico and Guatemala. And It's been an enormously successful plant around the world. uh, And there are concerns that it is smothering native vegetations in parts of the world because it's just so successful. Um, In terms of the plant trends, there's always, I mean, I was very concerned not to fall prey to any very sort of trendy plants in the book that I thought might not last the course in terms of the popularity of a particular species, aroids in the last three to four years since the pandemic began, the whole aroid family, the Eraceae, have been an enormous draw for houseplant people. And so there has been 
a big concern about plants being taken from the wild in their homelands because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, capitalism is going to happen and people can see a source of money. So I'm always very much on the side of learning how to propagate your plants, mm-hmm. learning how to share your plants with other people, and yeah. also growing house plants from seed. Because that way, these rare species that we've grown to love, we can then spread them without taking any more from the wild where um, where they need to be preserved. Oh, such a good point. Yeah. So that's something I do every year on the podcast is an annual sow along where I encourage listeners to sow seeds. Very relevant in the world of cacti and succulents, because Mm -hmm. like you were saying with the Dudleyas, there is a real issue there. And actually, a lot of these rare cacti can be grown from seed really successfully. Here in the UK, the British Cactus and Succulent Society has a seed scheme for members. So for less than for a few pennies, you can get a pack of seed of some quite unusual cactus and grow it from seed and end up with, you know, 25 plants. So there are ways around these problems, but oftentimes it's that kind of immediacy of somebody sees something on Instagram and they want it straight away. So I'm always erring on the side of being mindful about plant purchases and going back to what you said about your five plants. That's another thing that I'm always challenging is and it's a very common trope, the idea that you can't have too many plants. You absolutely can have too many plants. (laughs) I mean, I frequently am in that camp. And the number that's right for you right now could be one. It could be five, like it is for you. It could be 500. But whatever that number is, once you go over that number, plants are going to stop being a pleasure and they're going to become a pain. They're going to become unmanageable and you're going to lose plants because you can't take care of them. And so we need to really look at our homes, our lives and figure out how many plants that work for us and stick with that number. And that's also an aspect of sustainability. Oh, it is. Yes. You know, there's there's just as much danger from fast plants as there is from fast fashion, if I can put it that way. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I so agree. All right. So let's let's end with pleasure. When you look through this list of plants, is there one that just pops right out to you? Not as your favorite, because we know we, we all love them all. But is there one that like pops out to you as one you learned something really surprising about or that you just wouldn't live without, like one of your favorites? Share that with us. Oh my gosh, that's really tough. That's like, I mean, I did put, let me just talk a little bit about a plant that people will probably have raised eyebrows that I put this plant in here. Saxifraga stolonifera, the strawberry saxifrage. Now, so this is a member of the saxifrage family, which is not a family like the aroids that is packed full of houseplants. A lot of saxifrages are grown as alpines and things. But I love houseplants that can be grown indoors and out. And this is one of those plants, certainly in my temperate climate here in the UK. And this plant is really fascinating. And I was double sort of doubting that whether I should put this plant in. But when I started doing research about it, I discovered that this is actually a really long-standing houseplant here in the UK. And it's so pretty. It's almost like a begonia, like some of our indoor begonias in its form and how it how it uh, sends off runners. And it it's very it's a lovely generous plant. That's one of the great things about it. As you say, it gives off these stolons with these baby plants at the end. It looks a bit like a an anemone. It has these very beautiful white flowers in late spring, early summer. It's a lovely plant. It it does suffer a little bit in our centrally heated homes, but I just think it's such a good plant. But I found this quote from a publication called the Floricultural Cabinet from eighteen forty two. And it's, it reads, time was when the thread-like stolons of Saxifraga sarmentosa, that was the current scientific name mm-hmm. of the plant at the time, might be seen pendant from almost every casement and no mean appearance did it afford. 
but it falls to the lot of vegetables as of humanity that fashion reigns among their ranks and in consequence the natural pendant development of many is banished to give way to the more constrained style of planting so oh. by 1842 this plant was out of fashion right right <laughs> in and out and in and out right <laughs> so i just love that about this plant and it's one of those plants that I always want to have in my collection. It, it's a Japanese um, species that is has a cultural history in Japan. And the Japanese name, which translates to under the snow, which refers to these white flowers that, that the plant creates. Um, and it, I just find it very, very charming and was fascinated just to know that it had been a house plant for so very long. So that that's one of my absolute favorites. Um, and, and I also tell the story about a beautiful picture of this plant that was created in 1775, uh, which is in the British Museum. And it's a beautiful picture of a strawberry saxifrage. And it actually contains dried leaves of the actual plant as well as being painted and it's inscribed with the chinese characters uh, which translates as, as old tiger's ear which is the chinese name for the plant and so i talk a little bit about that as well and how charmed i was by this illustration mm. and i just i was just captivated um and that was a real delight for me to read more about it. And it also tied into a childhood memory of another saxophrage, London Pride. And in my childhood garden, we had London Pride planted next to our pond, which was made out of a dustbin, a <laughs> trash can. Right, uh, right. And we had it looked better than it sounded, but we had London Pride planted next to that. And I used to, I don't know if this is even like allowed, but I used to lick the flowers of the London Pride because the sugary nectar would be on right, there. Right. And I have a really strong, so it ties me into the, the, the yes. saxophrage family and my childhood memories of it. Oh, that's so great. And that that brings up a point. You're you're referencing the painting or print in the British Museum. The illustrations in your book by Helen are just lovely. I, I just found them so evocative and they really bring together the idea that our plants are art and horticulture and personal all at the same time. One of the things that was really great about working on this project was working with the illustrator, Helen Entwistle, who I was lucky enough, because of the way the book was funded, I was able to choose her. And that's very unusual in the world of publishing. Mm -hmm. Usually mm -hmm. the author doesn't get to choose the illustrator, but I chose Helen's very specifically because I loved her work and her aesthetic. And working with her, we worked very closely together. She was pregnant at the time. So she had a very strict deadline. She worked so hard getting the illustrations for these 25 plants done. And we were in almost daily contact. I was sending her photographs of the plants and talking about what I felt was wrong about other illustrations of the plants. Um, so I always get a bit annoyed when you see pictures of the Swiss cheese plant, Monstera Deliciosa, and it doesn't have any aerial roots because that's a major feature of that plant, but they're always kind of airbrushed out. So I talked to her a lot about what I wanted the illustrations to be like. And they're also very personal for a reason that might not be obvious, which is all of the pots in the book are either pots that I own or pots that Helen owns. So oh, they I all love have that. a personal meaning. So that yeah. pot that the saxifraga is in is a pot that I own and have had for many years. So that just for me is a little cherry on the top that it yeah. has a lot of personal meaning. And that's why plants are so exciting and nostalgic for us because they do bring about these memories and connections. Yeah. Yeah. They connect us from our pasts to our futures. And, um, oh, thank you for sharing that about the illustrations and the pots that will give readers and listeners just another thing to really enjoy. And I just, Thank you so much for being a guest on the program today, for your work with your podcast, On the Ledge. If people haven't heard it, definitely go and uh, take a listen. And then this beautiful book, Legends of the Leaf, is both lovely and, as you like to to say on your little watch watchword, maybe, it is legendary. <laughs> well, I'm really pleased that you enjoyed it. And I've been delighted with the reaction and 
the way that people have also found pleasure because I love to share information about plants and for people to get excited about them just as I'm excited about them. So it's a wonderful thing to have brought to fruition. If you had to pick five plants, so Jane, you're living on a on a desert island in your indoor environment. What are the five houseplants you would not want to live without? Well, I'm guessing this is a very much a fantasy suggestion. Climate, where yes, I can, yes. All the light, wise. all the dark, all the moisture, <laughs> whatever you need, your, yeah, your desert okay, island apartment has it. Okay. Well, the first, there's two trees that I want to have there. And they are the English oak and the beech. So Quercus roba, the English oak, mm-hmm. and Phagus, Phagus, however you want to say it. I don't know mm-hmm. how to say it. Phagus sylvatica, yep. the beech. The reason why I want those trees is because those are, for me, the keystone trees of my life. When I was growing up, I had a Quercus roba in our back garden, the first house that that I remember we had this massive oak tree and it wasn't a very big back garden, I should say. And I remember I've still got it actually did a school project called the oak tree in my garden, where I Mm. wrote about the different wildlife species living in the tree. And for me, that tree has a lot of significance. In fact, my children have recently introduced me to the world of Dungeons and Dragons and my (laughs) character name in Dungeons and Dragons is Quercus Roba. So that's very important to me. I love it. And the beach is the other keystone tree for me because where I grew up in the Chilterns, there are many beach woodlands which uh, were used by craftsmen So you can still find these dips in the ground where they worked and turned wood. And so for me, that's the other keystone tree, the beach, and it still grows where I live now in Bedfordshire in abundance. And so that for me is another amazing tree. I want to be sitting under those two trees and enjoying the shade. Then I want to have, uh, (laughs) now it goes a little bit off piste, I suppose. I, I also wanted to have the Swiss cheese plant, Monstra Deliciosa. So maybe that would be, somehow in my fantasy world, uh, making its way up one of these trees. And the reason for that is because that plant, I've spent so much time thinking about that plant. And it was a very early plant from my childhood. It was in the doctor's surgery at my doctor's. And I just have a really clear memory of a child of just looking at those leaves and just being in awe and wonder. Plus, it's edible. I mean, if I got it to a good size on the desert island, I could have those fruit. And I've never eaten the fruit of the Swiss cheese plant, the ceremon, as it's one of its names is the ceremon. I did a lot of research about this fruit and I'd love to try it one day. So that's on my list. Uh, then I, penultimate plant would be the tomato, bringing in my, my little bit of Italian heritage here. I love growing tomatoes. They're just, I think they're such a great challenge for the gardener because every year is different. Every year something works and something goes wrong. It's a little bit perilous. It's a little bit uncertain whether you'll get a crop growing them outside, but I love the challenge. And and this is where gardening is about nostalgia. The smell of those tomato leaves just takes me back to right. my childhood. Oh, it does. And my yeah. granddad's garden, he had these beefsteak tomatoes takes me right back to childhood. I'm just transported. So I would need that as a sensory sensory thing. And I think maybe for the last one, I, I was very much dithering over this last one, but I think also I would like to have some uh, English ivy. Again, it's a wonderful plant with a really long history of human association that goes back to uh, the late Stone Age. And I just think ivy is so underrated. And I know it's much maligned, but it's a wonderful wildlife plant. It has had many different uses through history. You can make soap out of it. And uh, I, I just love the leaves and I love everything about it. And in many ways, it's a kind of a counterpoint to the Monstra Deliciosa because they both have this ability I think it's, I might might be using the wrong word here. I think it's called heteroblasty, which is the way that the foliage change as it matures. And I just think it's such an amazing plant. I want some ivy, so I'm hopefully get some birds nesting in it and some wildlife going. 
So that would be my last one. Ah, thank you so much and very, very happy gardening on the ledge over your way. Thanks so much. Jane Perrone is the longtime host of the UK-based On the Ledge podcast, focused on indoor gardening and the love of houseplants. An expert in her field, her writing has been featured in The Guardian, The Financial Times, Gardens Illustrated, The Royal Horticultural Society's magazine The Garden, and The English Garden as well as editing The Plant Ledger, an email newsletter about the houseplant scene, Jane is also the author of a new book, Legends of the Leaf, Unearthing the Secrets to Help Your Plants Thrive. Jane's incredible depth and breadth of houseplant knowledge and passions from the podcast and her books is now joined as well by a great set of houseplant knowledge cards entitled House plant gardener in a box. Join us again next week when we're back to our winter reading in conversation once again with Marta McDowell, talking about the good fun of her newest book, Gardening Can Be Murder. If you're a fan of gardens and whodunit mystery and crime fiction, you're going to love the overlap Marta uncovers. That's next week right here. Listen in. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, a service of CAP Radio licensed to Chico State Enterprises. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by listeners just like you through the support button at the top corner of every page at cultivatingplace.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting. Cultivating Place is also made possible through the generosity of the Caddo Shaw Foundation. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler, tech and web support from Angel Hiracha, weekly show transcripts by Doulis Transcription, and communication support from Deanna Newpert and Matt Valiga. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.